Greetings everyone, this is Thomas Boer, and this time I will be reviewing Children at the Lord's Table by Cornelis Vinema, and this is assessing the case for paedo-communion. Now I've had a lot of uh, discussions, reading, thoughts about paedo-communion, um, and it's a major uh, flashpoint in Reformed churches today. You have those who are of recent note in favor of it, and those holding to the historic reform position who are not in favor of it. And you may be asking, what is pedo communion? Well, this is infant or child communion, where all members of the covenant, so believers and their children, are automatically entitled to all the privileges of the covenant, including the privilege of partaking of the bread and the wine, the Lord's Supper. And so what I want to do is just begin looking through Vinema's book, uh, beginning with the first chapter, which is actually all I've read so far, which should indicate to you that I'm only going to review the first chapter at this point. I don't know when I'll get to read through the whole book. It's not very long, um, but I am busy, so it may take some time. It may not. I may just get into this, read it, knock it out, review it quickly. Um, but the first chapter kind of unfolds the general argument of the Pado communion position. And so it kind of gives an overview of his whole book in a nutshell. And so I hope to review that for you and also add my thoughts in my own conversations with Pado communion advocates and those who hold to the historic reform position on communion for uh, children of believers, which is to be taken only when they make a credible profession of faith. So the first chapter is called Introdu Introducing the Question, Should the Children of Believers Be Admitted to the Lord's Table? Venema <clears throat> uh, references Peter Lighthart's book. He's a big uh, paedo-communion advocate uh, called Daddy, Why Was I Excommunicated? which is examining Leonard Coppice's book, Daddy, May I Take Communion, from written, I believe, back in 1988. So this discussion has been going on at some level in Reform circles since the 80s. Uh, in fact, I think even since the 70s. Uh, I saw an article in the Westminster Theological Journal uh, from 1975 that Venema references uh, arguing that children of believers should be able to um, partake of the bread and wine simply because they're in the covenant, simply because they're children of believers, regardless of whether they have or possess or express saving faith or not. Um, so j that just gives you an idea that this is not a brand new discussion. It may be uh, for many people because it's just coming onto the scene for them, uh, but in reality this discussion has been going on in reform circles for a generation at this point. I believe some of it comes out of more of a theonomic reconstruction uh, movement and it sort of, I believe, I could be mistaken here, but somewhat split that movement um, when some, like Doug Wilson, uh, though he says he was never officially part of the reconstruction movement, may maybe a better way to put it is those who have a lot of um, appeal, they, they find um, Rush Dooney and the Reconstructionist and Theonomist appealing, uh, and at some level, I would say I do myself, even though I wouldn't call myself a Reconstructionist. Some went the, the direction of paedo-communion and others vehemently resisted this. 
some argue that Greg Bonson uh, would be strongly in favor of pedo communion. Others argue just the opposite. So it is a fault line to uh, borrow from Vadi Bakum's uh, title of his most recent book on social justice. It, it is a fault line within Reformed churches today. And I think one of the reasons for that is there really is uh, an issue, I believe, in Reformed churches concerning covenant children. Many of them are apostatizing. Many of them are falling away from the faith, breaking the new covenant. That's especially troubling for Presbyterians or for any who uh, see the covenant, including not just believers, but also their children from their infancy, from their conception and so on, as I do. Why are our children included in, in the covenant if the majority of them are just going to um, incur even greater judgment and break the covenant and leave the fold and suffer the wrath of hellfire uh, all the more? That's not a blessing. That's not good for our children to be part of the covenant. If that just means that the majority of them uh, are going to likely just fall away and reap the whirlwind, face God's wrath and judgment all the more fiercely because they had the privileges of the covenant yet spurned it, spurned the blood of the covenant by which they were sanctified as Hebrews 10 talks about. So the covenant promises to us and to our children, as Acts 2.39 and elsewhere says, and in keeping with the uh, circumcision in the Old Testament, that, that included the male children, <clears throat> and by extension, all children were part of the covenant people of God in the Old Testament, the Presbyterian, the Reformed believer, um, with exception to the Reformed Baptist, see that continuity in the covenants, that Christ did not kick our children out of the covenant when he took on flesh and fulfilled the Old Covenant, Old Testament uh, types and shadows and promises, but the promises are, are all the richer, all the fuller to our children now. And so there's a covenantal expectation that as children are raised by their parents in the fear and admonition of the Lord, we, based on the promises of God and his covenant, have an expectation that our children will be brought to saving faith, born again by the power of the Holy Spirit and trusting in Christ as their Lord and Savior and walking with him uh, even from the tender years of their youth. Now, having an expectation of that and saying it's an absolute, um, every last child certainty or guarantee is two different questions, but as a general, true, genuine promise, I don't see how you can uh, hold to the covenant and the goodness of God even and deny this, deny that God has made promises to us and to our children, which are to be uh, worked out through the means of covenant nurture, raising our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, and that God will bless that ordinarily, certainly, ordinarily. Um, sadly, many Presbyterian and Reformed churches today who baptize their covenant children in my experience, certainly seem to not have much of an expectation that their children will actually come to faith. Uh, that's on one hand. On the other hand, there's been, I think, a smaller circle who sort of glibly just assume that because they're baptized, because they're in the covenant, they're good to go. But I think the prevailing wind, and that's probably in view of our larger broadly evangelical, baptistic, revivalistic culture that we've been in for, frankly, what, a, uh, over 100, 150, 200 years, um, 
that's rubbed off on most of us. And so we expect our children, even Presbyterians, to sort of sow their wild oats and God willing come back into the fold. But it's watered down, pardon the pun, uh, the promise is held forth to our covenant children in baptism. It's diluted them. It's um, made them of ill effect. And so I think those who are advocating for paedo-communion, that children, even babies of believers, should not only be baptized, but should receive uh, the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine, the covenant meal, um, as babies or very young children, uh, without any expression of saving faith, they are reacting to and I would say overreacting to uh, those who have completely made the promises of God uh, null and void. And so I share that sympathy greatly. Uh, I don't believe that at all it is faithful to baptize your children, uh, promising to raise them in the covenant, and then the whole time strongly doubting the goodness of God and his covenant promises to your children. I've heard Presbyterian pastors say as much, well, you know, this is just how it goes it's ordinary that our children are going to fall away. I hear parents of Presbyterian, um, Presbyterian parents trembling, uh, quaking, afraid that their children are going to leave the fold. Now, again, I'm not talking about some sort of arrogant presumption for our children, but faithfulness to God and his promises has got to look like something other than just fear, dread, that our children are just going to run away. No, God is not left us or our children as orphans. God is the father to us and to our children. And he is a good father and he has entrusted believing fathers to raise their children and pointing them to their heavenly father. Teaching them the word, bathing them in it, immersing them in it. To use another pun for my Baptist friends, immersion. Um, so anyway, I, I'm trying to lay out the, the groundwork and give anybody who's ignorant of the recent historical developments of why this is such an issue in Reformed and Presbyterian churches today some insight into that. Not that I have all the ins and outs, but I have enough to, I think, at least be conversant. Uh, and also for those who may be listening on one side of the equation or the other who might question whether I even know what I'm talking about. I hope at some level I know what I'm talking about, though I have no doubt those on both sides, some will probably conclude that I still have much to learn. And to some extent, they're right. And I also think to some extent, um, you guys can be overly zealous at times too. But be that as it may, let's jump in to chapter one here. And Venema says, contemporary proponents of what is often called paedo-communion frequently allege that the traditional view creates an artificial barrier to receiving children of believers at the Lord's Supper. Whether this is true, however, depends on a more basic question. On what basis should anyone be admitted to the Lord's table? And Venema is defending the traditional view. Uh, he does not believe in paedo-communion. And Doug Wilson has years ago, like 10 or more years ago, uh, sort of done a brief review of Venema's book. If you search for it on his blog and May blog, you can find it. Um, <clears throat> and he actually spoke highly of Venema's critique and review and found it fair. And so I think it's, for that reason, also a good book to point to for a counterpoint to those who do embrace pedocommunion. Um, uh, Venema says, The historic view does not deny that the children of the covenant are invited to the Lord's table. As a matter of fact, 
If their baptism means anything, it means that they are invited to respond in faith to the Lord's gracious promise, which would qualify them to receive the sacrament that nourishes faith. And that's a very important statement because in some uh, Facebook groups that, I've, that I'm in uh, that have a lot of Pedro Communion uh, supporters, there seems to be a very strong emotional response. Oh, you are starving your covenant children. You are excommunicating them and so on and so forth because you're not giving your you know, two-year-old or one-year-old even uh, the bread and the wine. And so they're saying you can't, you know, you're just an inconsistent Baptist or an inconsistent Presbyterian. You give them the one sign of baptism but not the other sign of communion. So you're saying because they can't receive the bread and wine, the covenant meal, they have no fellowship, they have no communion with the people of God. Um, and it's a very strong emotional reaction and response. And of course, it seems to them to be reasonable, to be logical, and so on and so forth. Uh, but this does get into the broader question of the nature of the covenant. Is everybody who is in the covenant certainly uh, regenerate? And not only regenerate, but regenerate from the moment in which they are in or brought in to the covenant. I think if you grant that no, uh, that is not the case, even for our covenant children, then it's certainly understandable that the historic Reformed view of the covenant and the promises to the children of believers would not grant them access to the Lord's table from the moment of birth, uh, or, or I, I should say simply by being baptized, because that's the argument the Pedro Communion make is that the only requirement to come to the table is to be baptized. But the historic reform position is that you must be baptized and make a credible profession of faith, discerning the Lord's body. And from 1 Corinthians 11, there's, there's a discerning and examining of yourself, a receiving and partaking of the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. Um, but <clears throat> if you grant that you can be part of the new covenant, but be unregenerate, or at least not yet regenerate, however word you want to use, uh, even for your covenant children, then right away we would understand and recognize that not all new covenant members have all the blessings of the new covenant because the highest and chief blessing or promise is actually being born again, actually being savingly united to Jesus Christ. So if you can grant that that is withheld, that the, com the actual saving union and communion with your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is withheld from some New Covenant members, at least for a period of time, then arguing from the greater to the lesser, why would it be so difficult to understand that Covenant children also may not be admitted yet, yet, the key word is yet, to the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. The table, which we understand as uh, historic Reformed believers in the nature of the covenant, the table that is for regenerate, as best as we can understand that. And I know the Pater Communionists scoff at the idea of even trying to determine that, but as best we can determine, those who are living and living, saving union with Christ, having received him by faith. Now, if the Pado Communion uh, believer argues that, well, every single uh, member of the New Covenant is 
regenerate, well, then that's where I would push back and say, well, you're the one arguing like a Baptist now, um, which is what they would accuse someone like me who would baptize my babies but not uh, give them bread and wine until they express saving faith in Christ. And so I know I'm deviating a bit here, um, but I'm trying to lay down some markers as they come to mind, and hopefully it's helpful to you. So back in Venema's book, um, the inclusion of children at the Lord's table is commonly referred to as paedo-communion or child communion. Now he, uh, Venema, distinguishes between like a soft and a hard paedo-communion. A soft paedo-communion he considers he doesn't even use the word deviation, I don't think, just maybe a modification of the historic Reformed position that, in his estimation, would require um, participation at the Lord's Supper to not come until your mid to late adolescence, which I would render that as the earliest, maybe, what, 14 years old, and the latest, 16 or 18 years old. And then he talks about a soft paedo-communion, which is admitting children on the basis of faith still, but at an earlier age. So I would actually fall into, according to his definition, a soft paedo-communion position. Uh, my eldest son is seven. He is not yet partaking um, of communion, but I expect that to change, um, certainly by the time he is eight years old and possibly my next youngest son, who will be um, seven in October. But it's not, for me, an age thing, and I don't even think for Venema, based on the book here and what he says in the first chapter, he's primarily concerned with age. He's more concerned with the fundamental question of what requirements are there in order to be admitted to the Lord's table, the Lord's supper. And that's really the whole debate. So he's not really arguing with the soft paedo-communionists, which... I would fall into according to his category, but he's talking about the hardline <clears throat> paedo communion advocates who, as soon as their children are baptized or as soon as they can chew a little bread and take a little taste of wine, they give it to them. So I've heard some talk about giving it as early as one or one and a half years old. And they do this without any kind of expectation of a profession of faith from a baby. And those are the ones I also would take, uh, you know, the most issue with. But I would also disagree, to some extent, with Venema on his uh, argument that uh, the Reformed churches historically have not admitted children to the table until they were at earliest maybe 14 years old based on middle adolescence. I don't know what other age you could subscribe that to. Maybe, maybe 13, he would argue. But regardless, my, uh, a few things that I've seen from a pastor friend who is not at all in favor of paedo communion the research he has done and that I've seen him share uh, would indicate that Calvin and others uh, in the Reformed movement, even on down through the Puritans, some may have generally advocated 12 or 13 years old before children would ordinarily take communion, but even many of them said, but what, how could we forbid a nine-year-old or a 10-year-old partaking if they can show that they have a genuine faith in Christ and partake in a worthy manner. And so it seems to be, you can find clearly, uh, at least as young as nine years old, nine and ten years old, uh, throughout the Reformed history since the Protestant Reformation, the Reformers would admit children at that age to the Lord's table. And I know many today who are against paedo-communion, 
one pastor I saw who's vehemently against that uh, on his blog from years ago said he's admitted someone as young as six years old. And so, I, and I'm sure Venema has done much research on this, but from the bit of research I have seen, and certainly modern um, practice in Reformed churches, many do um, grant children, indeed children, those prior to adolescence, to the Lord's table on profession of faith. And so, you know, we've got different views all over the place here. I believe Venema is coming from more of a Dutch Reformed background, and it seems like the bit of exposure I have to that, um, they do especially wait to the ch until the children are much older. In fact, I read one uh, minister, he's now deceased, from that more of the Dutch Reformed background, saying, as an article I was reading online from, I don't know, several decades ago, now, there is a problem in some of these denominations, these Dutch Reformed denominations, because the, 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 it wasn't just children or adolescents, but adults refraining until their you know, 20s or mid-20s or at all from taking the Lord's Supper because of this hyper view of self-examination, fear that you're partaking in an unworthy manner, unworthy manner, and so on and so forth. He was granting that that was an issue, and I believe he even granted, I think it was in that article, that Calvin recommend, uh, recommended 10 years old as a reasonable age to... Um, admit children to the table. Nevertheless, he said he recognized that his those in his circles in his churches would not be uh, satisfied or ready for this, and so he, he thought it was still fine for them to wait till they were 16 or 18 years old. Um, so, yeah, you've, you've got that kind of mentality going on as well. Again, I think the, the um, pedo-communion advocates are reacting strongly to this, as I would want to react strongly to this as well. So I'm kindred spirit with them in that. But I don't go to the point of admitting every baptized infant to the table because I do recognize, uh, as Reformed tradition has always recognized, that not every New Covenant member has all the blessings and privileges of the New Covenant, including um, saving faith in Jesus Christ. So, Continuing, um, yeah, I, I think it's helpful though to point out that Venema does rightly show that those like me who hold to the traditional view, you can call it credo communion. I know that's a posturing word to try to make us sound like Baptist, but that's fine. I'll use it. Credo communion, um, that only believers um, expressing faith can come and take of communion, of the Lord's table, Lord's supper. It's important to see that Vidima is saying that we are not excommunicating our children. We are not saying there isn't any privileged position for our covenant children as regards the Lord's table. They are invited to it. There is a place at the table for them. And the way that they uh, truly uh, sit at the table is by faith, feeding on Christ truly, which is by faith. And that's, that's where the whole cart before the horse, that, that, that's where the, the pedo-communion advocates just really smash things and mix things up. The mere eating and drinking is not the blessing in the Lord's Supper. It's eating and drinking in and with faith. Now, I will grant that some, maybe even many, um, pedo-communion folks will say, well, the children do have faith, or at least we should presume that they have faith. They can't express it yet, but 
we presume that they are regenerated, and if so, they have the inclination or habit or the seed of faith, and therefore, they have a right to the table. That's typically the argument. Now, still a revision of the historic Reformed view, because we don't argue that you just have to be regenerated or a, an inclination, therefore, to saving faith, but actually expressing saving faith, able to do so with discernment, doing this in remembrance of me, as Christ says, partaking in remembrance of him, proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes, uh, discerning the Lord's body, so on and so forth in 1 Corinthians 11. Even if you say a baby of one years old has the work of the Spirit in his heart so that he's united savingly to Christ, which I would grant is possible, that still does not admit the child to the table. He's not discerning, remembering, proclaiming, etc. The Pedro Communion, again, our um, advocate will say, yes, they are, because the act of eating and drinking itself is all the proclaiming that is required. Uh, but that is not at all what the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 11, would teach, uh, nor the various feasts and festivals and so on of the Old Testament, Passover included. That is not what is expected or required either. You're expected to enter into, in your heart, and your spirit, the actual point of what you're doing. Humility, abasement, also joy in the New Testament, New Covenant of the work of Christ for us uh, and being admitted to his table. It's supposed to be an inward reality, not an external going through the motions ritual. Let's see what else. Um, yeah, so Venema pinpoints and says, the exact question to be addressed is, does membership in the covenant, which is signified and sealed to the children of believing parents through their baptism, constitute a sufficient basis for admitting them to the table of the Lord? And so then he breaks down what are basically four arguments of those who advocate for Pedo communion and then he in turn is going to review those arguments himself in the next in the following four chapters and in this order and so the order is uh, beginning with the historical argument the practice of Pedo communion was widespread in the early church and now this understand this is what the Pedo communionists argue Venema is not necessarily granting he agrees with that, nor am I. He's saying this is the position of the Pedo Communion advocate. The practice of Pedo Communion was widespread in the early church and continues to be the practice of the Eastern Orthodox churches, that's kind of indisputable, that's true, which serve communion to infants on the occasion of their baptism and thereafter. Uh, the occasion for its secession in the Western church, so Western church, the churches that we're in in the United States, was the development of the doctrine of transubstantiation, right? Where the Roman Catholics said the body, um, or, or the bread and wine, literally become by a miracle the, the uh, body and blood of our Lord, Jesus. And that was formally codified at the Fourth Lateran Council in AD 1215. And so, Plato Communion advocates are basically saying, look, historically, the Western Church also used to practice Plato Communion until 1215. Uh, when the Roman Catholic Church was afraid that infants would uh, desecrate the elements that became literally the body and blood of Jesus Christ, uh, and so then they could not be admitted any longer. 
And so it goes on, Reformed believers who advocate the practice of paedo communion generally recognize that the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, not the traditional practice of the church, finally determine the faith of the Christian church. And so they want to bring in other arguments. And so they add three more. One, the covenant argument. Two, the Passover slash Lord's Supper analogy. And three, the 1 Corinthians 11 argument, which I've referenced that passage heavily already. So the covenant argument is that the paedocommunion position says they have true covenant communion, communion. All members of the new covenant, believers and their children, are admitted to the Lord, Lord's table simply by being members of the covenant. Nothing more is required. You're baptized, you're in, that's it. You get Lord's Supper also. So they, they argue that the prohibition against children of the covenant being admitted to the table of the Lord amounts to a kind of backhanded excommunication and that it betrays a failure to rid the church's practice of a kind of baptistic thinking. It's an inconsistency, they say. Um, and so the Baptist would be right because we give one sacrament but not the other, that we are hopelessly inconsistent and don't practice what we preach. If the children are part of the covenant, then give them the covenant meal. That's the argument. And then the third point here is the analogy with the Passover. Since the Lord's Supper was instituted on the occasion of the Passover as the new covenant fulfillment of the old covenant rite, proponents say the church should admit children to the supper just as they were formerly admitted to the Passover. And again, that's a point that um, Venema will dispute uh, later in the book, I believe, that whether or not um, children, young children, um, and babies and so on actually partook of the Passover meal in the Old Testament. The Pedo communion position is saying, look, they did, and if so, if we can argue um, from circumcision to baptism for our covenant children, we can argue from inclusion at the Passover meal to inclusion to the Lord's Supper meal um, on the same basis. So let's not be dispensationalistic, says the Pedo communionist um, And I would respond that regardless of whether young children or babies did partake of the Passover meal, there's several complicating factors and I don't know if we'll talk about some of these. Uh, one is that the meal of Passover was eaten in the homes of the families. Um, so it was a private family meal uh, in addition to a, a ritual, um, a religious ritual, if you want to put it like that. And so if a child partook of it as a family meal, that does not necessarily infer or imply that he partook of it as uh, a sacramental, in a sacramental sense. And from the Old Testament, we know that there's a point where the children ask their, their fathers, their, their, their parents, you know, what do you mean by this, by this rite, by this ritual? And that's kind of where the whole debate on Passover hinges. Does that mean that the children are partaking of it and are now starting to understand it and are asking what it means? And then the fathers tell them what it means. You know, our Lord delivered us from Egypt and slavery and bondage and so on. But the children were, were partaking the whole time, and so therefore we should let our children partake of the Lord's Supper the whole time. When they ask us, what do you mean by this? Then we explain it to them, and then they enter into it by faith, and therefore the full blessings come to them once they ask these questions and understand it. But prior to that, uh, no harm, no foul. Uh, the excommunication, um, we don't want to excommunicate our children. Uh, we want them already to be kind of trained as a teaching tool at the very least to partake of the bread and wine. Um, in 1 Corinthians 11, when it says you reap judgment on yourself uh, if you partake in an unworthy manner, that was only talking about, as they'll say in 1 Corinthians 11, that was only talking about those adults who were 
the rich and the poor were not eating together, some were eating ahead uh, of time and so on and so forth. That's the only prohibition. Obviously an infant or a baby or a young child isn't doing that. And so this um, examine yourself, partake in a worthy manner, uh, doesn't apply to young children or babies and they still get to partake. So that's kind of the flow of the Pedo communion argument. And so I kind of combined the analogy with Passover and the 1 Corinthians 11 position or argument there. Um, and, and that's essentially the end of the chapter here. Uh, I guess there's a few things I'll add and then I'll wrap it up for the first chapter. Um, it, one other comment from Venema in the book. If Reformed churches may argue from the Old Testament practice of circumcision and the inclusion of children within the covenant to the New Testament practice of baptizing the children of believers, then they also may argue from the Old Testament practice regarding children's participation in the Passover and other covenant meals to the New Testament practice of admitting children to the Lord's table. And yeah, I noted that already. But then when it comes to the 1 Corinthians 11 argument, the paedo-communionists say the admonition to discern the body of the Lord, for example, is not a general rule that every participant in the Lord's Supper should have a proper understanding of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Rather, it is a specific charge to some believers in Corinth who were acting inappropriately in the context of the celebration of the Lord's Supper, and some believers today um, who may commit a similar offense. And so this does not apply to our covenant children or babies, they would argue. But they do argue, also I've heard them argue this way, it may be the case, they would say, that the historic reform practice of excluding children or babies from the table of the Lord represents a failure to discern the body or church in a manner that is similar to the practice Paul condemns in 1 Corinthians 11. Now my issue is, for the paid communion proponents, they are, they're trying to have it both ways here. And I've, in discussions, kind of seen that al already, where they're very narrow, about who 1 Corinthians 11 applies to so that it can't possibly apply to our children, but it does apply to you guys who, uh, but, but then it does apply to the children, right? It doesn't apply to us in um, giving it to them, but it does apply in uh, restricting it from them. And so you guys, you traditional historic reform folks, you're all wrong and you are starving your children, etc. Now the, the other cry or response that has some merit, but I think is overblown or said, uh, just kind of shrieking back at the pedo communion advocates is, well, you're just poisoning your children. You're reaping judgment on them, you, you know, you wackadoodles. <laughs> and so you just get yelling back and forth emotional arguments on both sides. Well, we both can't be right. There's one right position on this. Um, but here's my closing comments for the first chapter. I would rather have either, uh, both, I would rather have both the Reformed Baptist who doesn't recognize baptism or paedo communion for his children, but does recognize the parental nurturing duties of the parents, especially the father as the head of home, to raise their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, or the paedo communion advocate who gives both sacraments to the children and recognizes truly the need to raise the children the fear and admonition of the Lord and not just presume that they're good to go because they're taking the sacraments. I'll take either one of those over the modern Presbyterian Reformed uh, practice that I believe dominates where we baptize our children, we do not give them the Lord's table, 
Holy Communion. And also, we just don't even believe the promises to our children. Not that they would say they don't believe the promises, but in effect, in practice, they show that they doubt the promises at the very least. I don't want to hear these doubts about God's promises or baptizing your children and then acting like that means nothing. Um, I would rather be paid a communion or Reformed Baptist than that. So I have my guns most aimed at the perversion uh, of the historic Reformed practice that you know dots their I's and crosses their T's on every doctrinal point and gets that part right, except for the fact that they don't actually believe the covenant promises hardly at any level, it seems. That's how you, you've uh, birthed um, so many apostate children, birthed, kind of a pun again, um, and you've also birthed this whole movement of paedo-communion. I firmly believe that. I firmly believe that if the, the, the historic reform practice was continuing today, um, we'd be admitting children to the table at eight or nine years old, let's say, um, as early as that, you know, maybe as late as 12 or so, 12 or 13. And we'd be raising our children in the fear and nurture admonition of the Lord, believing the promises to our children, trusting the Lord that he would bring them to saving faith through these means of essentially gospel proclamation and nurture from within the covenant, the sphere in which the spirit is at work. And we would see a great number, the great majority of our children come to faith and not break the new covenant, not apostatize. And we probably wouldn't have this pedo communion position at all. It would be a much minor, more minor trickle uh, as it has been historically in the Reformed Church. But, but the whole church in general, including Reformed churches, is sideways right now. You know, everybody, not everybody, but you know what I mean, many are getting woke. Uh, you can say I hold every doctrinal point of the Westminster Confession of Faith, I hold it without exception, and, you know, support a Greg Johnson in the PCA or something like that who calls himself a gay Christian, gay but celibate Christian or whatever. Um, you can believe in racial reparations that were systemically racist, that we have white privilege simply by being white, and be a member in good standing, and uh, even as a minister, you can protest I suppose, uh, apparently, in Black Lives Matter protests, or at least cheer those on who are doing so. Uh, like, I believe, Chad Van Dixhorn and or his wife were doing a year ago. And he's writing, you know, books on the history of the Westminster Confession of Faith, Westminster Assembly, I should say, and doing great research, but have all these bizarro uh, beliefs that really belie uh, I would argue very much uh, actual fidelity to the Reformed faith and doctrine and practice and so on. So that's kind of where we're at, sort of the Wild West. It's a bit of a frightening time. And the reason I'm interested in the Pedo communion discussions and arguments is because I have friends who hold to that, and I believe they're in error. But I also agree with them that they're responding to what is at least as great, if not and probably even a greater error, which is not believing the promises to your children, even when you say that you do and you baptize them. So, I think this matters a lot. If we want to see our nation turn around, if we want to see our churches thrive and grow generation to generation, we have to keep our kids, as one of the recent Doug Wilson's uh, conferences was titled, I believe. Keep your kids, keep your children. Yes, God must do that work, but he's given us means and promises by which this may be achieved by his grace.
And so that is our aim, that is our goal, and is that, our great, that, that is really our great need. If our great need is faithful fathers, and I agree with that, as many are pointing out, then the great need of faithful fathers, their great duty, is to lead and raise their families well, such that the promises to us and our children are being realized in the hearts of many, most, God willing, all of our covenant children. Until that happens, reformation in the home has not happened. You cannot say, you cannot say that Christian families are doing well if the majority of them are apostatizing. You cannot say that. Well, you can't play the Holy Spirit. I'm not playing the Holy Spirit. I am listening to the words of God and his promises to us and to our children. That, that's what we have to, that promise, that truth is what has to be believed. And I also do think that the, the Pedo communion uh, believers, especially if they're of the stripe that doesn't even do what Doug Wilson does, which apparently when they're one and a half, two years old, will give them a sign language catechism, uh, you know, something like, where is God? They point to the sky, do you love Jesus? And they can, you know, squeal or say yes or something. And they'll kind of sort of practice a creative communion position at a very young age like that. Uh, many pedo communionists, I don't believe, even do that. And it's just simply if they can eat and, you know, eat the bread and drink a little bit of wine, that's it. Uh, I think that position has a danger as well, that if you go too far with that, maybe not you, but the next generation after you, your children may further go in that direction and work it out more consistently, I believe, more consistently in the wrong way. Um, meaning that, well, the children must all be regenerate already and they're good to go. And so you, you also, you likewise fail to properly nurture them uh, with the true substance of the words of God, the words of life, the gospel message, um, admonition, exhortation, um, family worship, you know, rearing them um, in the ways of the Lord as you lie down, as you rise up, and so on and so forth. I'm not accusing pedocommunionists, by and large, of doing that now, but I'm saying the, the theological error, as I see it, very well could and I think will a generation down lead further in that, in that, in that way, in that direction. And so that's why all of this matters. That's why we need to have both our doctrine and our heads right, so that our practice can be consistent and faithful to the glory of God and for the good of us and our children as well. Well, that's all I'm going to say. I don't want to meander any farther. I hope that as I go through the following chapters, you will uh, listen and learn along with me, and uh, we can have a better understanding of Pedo communion and Credo communion and the historic reform practice of Credo communion, if you want to put it in that term, in those terms. All right, thank you. God bless.